I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. Well, hey, welcome back to the King and Culture podcast. Uh, this is a the beginning of, I guess, what will be a few, I don't know if these are special editions or just the new editions. Uh, for the next six weeks on this podcast, we're going to be actually having weekly episodes. Uh, we've been doing about uh, once or twice a month. And then over the summer, it got a little kind of splotchy here and there. As Seth, you and I were traveling. Um, but uh, as we do this series at Redemption Gateway, Countercultural Convictions, we wanted to have just some regular opportunities to go a little bit deeper. We know there's some folks that would like that. Yeah, I think we're calling this Season 2.5, <laughs> the Countercultural Bonus Content Episodes. It's a very long name for the season. I think that the faithful listeners of this episode are really wondering, Seth, can we actually do it every week? That is a fair question, and we will see, but I believe so. We might have to record it. I mean, you're, you're going to be traveling at some point here, and yeah. so we'll see. I'm going to Prague. Yeah. You might have heard of it. It's a different place. It's a different place. Got some uh, extended family over there. And yes. Gonna go this is our visit. fourth attempt at going to Prague so, in the last 18 months. So you might be going to Prague. We'll see about that. But, uh, yeah, so we're going to do our best to uh, really just try each uh, week to uh, create a conversation that digs a little bit deeper, maybe talks about some of the stuff that we thought about talking about in the sermon and we didn't uh, maybe talk about some things that we did talk about that we want to push into deeper. So that's a little bit of, uh, of where we're going to go with this. Especially these topical sermons, we tend to do sequential exposition, where you pick a book and preach through a book. But these type of topical sermons give me more stress than teaching a book, partially because you research topics and there's so much to say about every single topic, right? You just, sure. you just preach a sermon on culture, how many billions of books have been written on culture, right? And More so, than I've read, yeah, for sure. And this next week, I'm teaching on gender. And it's one of those, I think I told you last week, that I'm more anxious about it than I have been. Not because of the topic itself, but because I have 12 hours of stuff to say and I have to figure out the right 35 minutes sure. to say on a Sunday morning. And so I just don't like that. There's the pain of editing, of self-editing, what writers call killing your darlings is just <laughs> not pleasant. So I'm curious for you, uh, by the way, if you're listening and you haven't watched the sermon yet, stop the episode, go listen or watch the sermon and then rejoin us because we're going to speak, assuming people have talked, uh, people who are listening have watched the sermon. So Luke, yeah. you preached the sermon. You uh, were not as edited as you wanted to be. You went about 48 minutes instead of a <laughs> typical 35, which is, you know, you can do whatever you want. But the, I'm curious, as, as you're thinking about... What, Shots fired. Yeah, what, let's, see, let's see how it goes for you this we'll week. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> as you're thinking about stuff that you knew you had to put in or stuff you kind of wanted to put in, but you ended up leaving it out. What were some of those things for you? Yeah. I mean, you mentioned just like so many different options. I do like the way that having a text just sort of governs it. It's like, I don't feel the liberty when I'm preaching through John to just say whatever I want to say. I have to say what that passage of John says. Similarly, in a message like this, I don't feel like I can just say whatever I want to say. Um, but because you're not really governed quite as much by like, here's this one text, um, you know, you're really trying to kind of pull in from a lot of different approaches of, you know, biblical theology and um, just analysis. So, so yeah, I feel like I had a bunch of different, I had about five different outlines. I feel like I could have gone and, um, you know, and I think that, I think the biggest thing is, is even just sort of how we decided to do a message like the one we did on Sunday on how we counter culture, because this was a series that we originally were doing over a year ago. 
And really the motivation of it was to say, hey, we have some convictions as a church that we just want to make sure people know about. Um, these are things that if people are going to be part of our, our church, especially as covenant members, they learn about, they uh, go through the rooted class, they hear about some of these convictions. We say in a lot of these convictions, hey, you don't have to agree with us. You don't even have to do it the way we would do it. If you were in charge of a church, you might do it some other way. But just so you know, this is how we do it. And in particular, this series is kind of looking at the ones that, that go kind of run against the grain of kind of the broader broader culture in particular. So when we first mapped out the series, we didn't have this message that I just preached in it. And uh, really, I think it was like over this last year, a lot of what I saw and a lot of what we as, as just preachers across Redemption Church saw was just that like, man, so many of the disagreements and divisions and misunderstandings really are coming from this, like, what's your approach to handling the culture? We just have people who like, just down the list, believe almost all of the same theological realities and yet are seeing what's going on in the world, seeing how the church should react to it, engage with it, respond, participate, not participate, just in wildly different ways. And so as much as anything, I felt like I was just trying to kind of, uh, you know, pull back the curtain a little bit and go, hey, here's here's how we think about this as a redemption church, as, as leaders. And we don't think about every part of it the exact same way, but there's a kind of sensibility there's a kind of instinct and as much as anything it, it was less about like here's the exact thing i gotta say and more like i want to help people experience that sensibility and that impulse for some people uh we don't engage nearly enough with with cultural related issues for others it's way too much for other people it's boy you guys are so hard-edged on stuff for others it's like man you guys are so soft and so um, I'm not even trying to be in the middle and I'm not definitely not trying to kind of please everyone at all, but I do, I do just kind of want to go like, well, here's how we do it. And here's why. And to the degree you resonate with this, you'll love our church to the degree you don't, you'll probably struggle. So that was kind of what I was trying to do, uh, in it. And, um, you know, I don't know. As you think about our church, cause I don't think you've done a message like this before. The church is about 12 years old. Is that right? The church is about 12 years old. Uh, I don't know. I don't think that I've done one that's been kind of this theme. Yeah, A lot of what I heard from you on Sunday, and even what I hear from you behind the scenes, is I can think about our approach to culture in kind of two dimensions. There's like position, like how we think about culture and ethics and right and wrong and morality and government. But on the other side, there's disposition, like mm -hmm. how we hold it, how we act, our character and tone and style when we go about it. When you think about our church and you think about your own life and heart, are you more concerned about the positional aspects or the dispositional aspects? Um, probably the dispositional. Yeah, talk more about that, like the the way, the how, not the what, as our approaches to culture. Yeah, I mean, I just it, it reminds me a little bit of like uh, you know ev almost every year you and I and Matthew Brazelton and when he was here, Josh Watt, we would do the, the ask anything deal usually after christmas where people are texting questions and and it it really is all texted in like we're not planting questions we don't have it in advance we don't know what's coming really there's no way to prepare other than there's a handful of questions you just know are always going to get asked and whatever but the thing that we will always say to each other before that is like listen people might remember what we say they'll really remember the the approach we had the kind of uh, way we thought about it the like that's the cultural piece. And I, I mean, so much of um, so much of our church story has been like going, hey, we want to create a certain kind of culture. 
And, um, and I think that's, I, I think the reality is, it, you know, I mean, you know this, Seth, I know this, anyone listening knows this, that you can have the right information um, and based on how you approach communicating that right information to somebody can t- totally overwhelm the information. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Counselors will differentiate two terms. One is content. One is process. Yeah. You know, content is what you're saying. Process is how you're saying it. It's kind of the unspoken, you know, like the husband who goes like, I said, you look fine. You know, like, <laughs> right. sure. Like the, the undercurrent, the tone, the, the posture, the volume communicates way more than like the actual statements themselves. Yeah. And I think trying to going back to the, it's not what it's how more so when we talk about redemption gateway being a faithful presence in the culture, both as a counterculture and as a separate new culture, really trying to do that. Hey, the way that we love each other and speak in love carries at least as much weight, probably substantially more weight than any position papers or statements or things that we actually. Yeah. And a lot of it is our kind of, it's our missional instinct. I mean, we, we planted the church 12 years ago and we continue to have a feeling of like we're sent here as the people of God to be a missionary to this community. And you don't usually get real far in that process. If you start with just telling everyone they're stupid, you know, I mean, you can build quite a following of people who agree with you that they're all stupid. You know, you can throw all the red meat to the people who are already convinced, but if you actually want to try to win people and you want to try to engage with people and you want to have relationships, you got to start with a certain kind of posture. And so that, that, that is the heart in it. Um, I mean, I, I feel, um, when I think about different cultural issues, probably about the same way as a lot of people who are way more hard edged about everything than I am. Um, like I, I would see a lot of the things and a lot of the dangers the same way, but I would kind of go, well, what are our options? I mean, we can just, we can run from it. We can gripe about it. We can get mad at all the people <laughs> or we can try to win them. Um, and I just think it's interesting, even just as you look at our culture, I mean, everybody pick the issue in about 10 seconds, everyone knows exactly where they land on it and they mostly don't change. Yeah. And so, I mean, I mean, maybe that might be why some people would go, well, no one's going to change anyway. So at least just be real strong about what you think. And, and that's one approach. I mean, people do that. Um, but that's you, not the approach we're trying to take. I've heard you say a variety of ways in, in different places, this idea that do you want to make a point or do you want to make a difference? Sure. And how easy it is and cheap it is to make points. You just send a tweet and there it is, made a point, then I get to feel smug, I get to feel better than. Whereas making a difference actually takes a lot of work internally because I have to really manage my own anger and anxiety as I engage if I'm going to be a winsome, kind, loving person. But then also externally, relationships take time to build. It takes a while to unfold. The other thing that I've just noticed a ton as it relates to culture issues is how having shared enemies really does create a sort of connection between people. Hmm. It's not what we're looking for in terms of connection. Like having a shared enemy is like, yeah, we hate those people or we hate that guy or we hate that woman or we hate the people who think blank. And you feel like you're a part of something when you're all have a shared enemy, but ends up being this kind of thin veiled and you actually have to stay angry and stay fearful and stay anxious if you're going to maintain that pseudo connection with those people. Mm. And so that's kind of like that. It's a, it's kind of a fake approach to solving the loneliness problem is having shared enemies. And one of the things you mentioned in the sermon was how this belief that we get bought into that the enemies end up being 
the people in the world rather than the satanic powers of principalities. Yeah, and, that, that's that's a great point. I mean, that would have been a good verse probably even to talk about for Ephesians yeah. 6. Can, can you elaborate on this idea of the question of, because we talk about being in the world, not of the world. We talk about the church in a lot of ways the Christians talk about the world and we end up using it as like a euphemism for those liberals out there or something along those lines. Not everyone uses yeah. it in, in, in our to, context. That's in how a lot context, of people would yeah. think about it. Yeah. So at least when I grew up hearing there's the church and there's the world and the world wants you to blank, blank, blank. And it was always stuff associated with uh, generally political liberalism or something like that. And so that's kind of like the understanding of it. Whereas a lot of what we're trying to do is help people see that the enemies are not, pundits who disagree with you or but the enemies are like these principalities and demonic forces that rule over this present darkness can you speak to this question of like who is our enemies who is the world how do we love these various people and what's the real target we're shooting at here yeah it's really interesting even when you just think about the the word world and how it's used in the bible right so sometimes it's used to describe the cosmos this is like describing just the, the physical creation. Like this is God's world, uh, right? Like the hymn we would sing, this is my father's world. And uh, that song would be all about all the goodness of God's world, right? This is kind of the structure of creation. The creation has all this goodness in it because it's made by God, uh, humanity made in the image of God. And so there's that way to talk about the world, which yeah. is very positive. Yeah, in that sense, you're saying cosmos, not chaos, yeah. Right, it's kind of contra the chaos theories of the ancient Near East where you had the gods fighting and whoops, we got the creation or whoops, we got the world or even like the Darwinist theories of you just have chaos and imploding all the time and exploding and, and expanding. We have a cosmos, which is like a, the opposite of chaos. It's an it's a ordered, designed, normative, structured way of viewing the world. And you're going, hey, God made biology, God makes chemistry, the world. He loves the world yeah. and we should love the world and we're in the world. Right. And our, the carbon in our skin is the same carbon that's in the dirt and right. world. It's kind of exclusively positive. Yeah, it's very positive. It relates to creation. I mean, John 3.16 comes to mind. You know, God so loved the world. Uh, he loved everything he'd made, right? And, and it was all very good, right? There's that kind of a reality. But the Bible also talks about the world as a real threat, right? Um, James, I think it is, who says, you know, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity, hatred against God? Uh, do not love the world or the things in the world, the Bible tells us. And so that kind of a description of the world is really talking about the, the powers and the structures and the dynamics that are going on in, in a fallen world, um, animated especially by the powers and principalities and uh, the satanic forces of darkness in this present evil age. And so that is overwhelmingly negative in the Bible. And so it's interesting because I even think a lot of how we approach culture has to do with which part of the world do we most sense and kind of have an experience of like, Ooh, yeah, that, that resonates. Right. And so people who um, think about the world mostly being God's good world and his, and the structure of creation and the goodness of creation. And this is all really a great gift of God and every good and perfect gift comes from above, right? Folks like that are going to be way more positive in their cultural engagement. Um, if, if you come from an approach where what you experience and what you sense and what you feel is more of the negativity of the world and the godlessness and the, 
and the belittling of the Lord and the diminishing of the dignity of human people and just all these, I don't know if there's other kind of people, but human people. Um, Human people, (laughs) other types of people. (laughs) Yeah, but if you experience the negative part, well, then you're going to be pretty, you're going to be pretty on alert and you're going to be pretty like, eh, I don't know, this stuff makes me nervous. And so um, the irony or the interesting thing, I guess, is that the Bible talks about both. And so um, I think that's a lot of what we're trying to do is go like, hey, the threats really are real. Like they're, we really do have enemies. I think there's a kind of cultural engagement that goes, oh, there's not really enemies. If we would just be nice to people, they'd all kind of come around. And I go like, well, tell that to people in Afghanistan right now. Tell that to Christians in Afghanistan right now who've just been overtaken by the Taliban. They have legit enemies. Absolutely. Like it's no joke. And, uh, and so we do have real enemies and there is a real fallen world, but there's also God's common grace in it. And I feel like we've talked about common grace and over the history of some of our episodes, but I mean, that, that is a, that's one of the big dynamics is how much common grace do you see in the world? Do you see a lot? Well, that's going to lead you to engage culture one way. Do you see very little? That's going to cause you to engage in another way. I think a lot of healthy biblical theology and healthy cultural engagement by extension has to do with this idea. And I don't know if you ripped this off from Andy Stanley or from Tom Schrader or someone, or if it's a Luke Simmons original. <laughs> I mostly rip things off, so. Don't we? We'll, we'll see. Okay. We're all remixing. You know, the, so, the, so here's this idea is we have a lot of things that we treat like they're problems to solve when in reality they're tensions to manage. That's Andy Stanley, yes. Yeah. So there's so many things in our life that we want to have we treat them as problems and then we have this anxiety or preoccupation with them until we can quote solve them mm-hmm. when in reality they're just tensions that we need to eternally learn to manage and live with and a lot of good theology ends up being acknowledging recognizing and holding on to tension yep. and just living in it yep you you just talked about this idea of common grace so in the reformed tradition especially the kyperian branch of it there's these two doctrines that seem and feel irreconcilable Doctrine one is common grace. This comes from Matthew 5. The sun rises, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Mm-hmm. Right? A non-Christian, totally evil, hates God, hates their neighbor, hates their kids, abusers, everyone, can plant a seed, and the seed springs up a tree which gives it apples. Yeah. Right? Because the sun rises and the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Common grace. God gives blessings to all types of people regardless of their salvation status. Then there's this other idea, antithesis, that's getting at the idea of that which is antithetical to God, this eternal tension that exists between the the regenerate and the unregenerate, the Christian and the non-Christian, the saved and the unsaved, and this idea that their utmost commitments are either to self or to the Lord, and there's just this total disposition difference regarding the engagement of life. Is the point of life to eat, drink, be merry, acquire, or is the point of life to love your neighbors, serve the Lord, be honored in what you can do? And so can you speak to those two tensions and how it shapes the way we engage culture? Yeah, well, I mean, even when you talk about attention to manage, like I, like I said, that, that really come that phraseology comes from Andy Stanley, who says, you know, life is filled with these times when you, it's like, this is not a problem to solve. This is attention to manage. And one of the ways you know that it's attention to manage is if uh, – if it keeps happening, you keep experiencing this this uh, this issue. Another way is to go if you have really good people that kind of think, you know, both 
things. In our case, it'd be like, this is probably attention advantage if you have biblical and theological truth that feels like it's like opposed to one another. And how does that work? Which, which honestly, I mean, I just feel like the Bible's full of that, right? Is, is Jesus a man or is he divine? Well, if you, if you solve that problem one way or the other, you're going to end up in heresy, right? Are we supposed to receive the gospel by sheer grace or are we supposed to live a life of good works? Yes, right? You try to solve that problem and you go to the logical extremes. You go, I end up in a bad place. I mean, so I just feel like, is is God three or is God one, right? I mean, it, the, the Bible says this everywhere. Um, and so I think, I think this reality in the cultural dynamics, even when you kind of go, like if you sort of imagine these tensions, if one tension is how much common grace is there, another tension is, well, how it involved should the church, how active or passive should the church be in engaging culture? And if you can kind of, depending on how you answer those two questions, you're just going to end up in a real interesting place, right? Like if you go, there's not much common grace, the world is mostly really bad, and we should be very passive in engaging it, then you probably end up kind of Mennonite or Amish kind of in the extremes. If you go, you know what, the the world's full of common grace and we should just do it, we should be as active as we can be. You know, kind of the a light, you know, one version of that might be kind of a seeker-sensitive church that would go like, hey, you know what, there's a lot out there that's in culture, let's just speak the language, let's just engage. Let's. But the, the extreme of that would be kind of the progressive liberal, um, you know, kind of indistinguishable from the world kind of a church. So that's a different kind of extreme. Um, you know, if you feel like, hey, there's the, there's, the world's really pretty bad, but we should be pretty active in it. Well, that's going to lead you to kind of go, well, we need to work hard to transform it, right? A lot of the instinct of the religious right and of even the kind of faith and work movement and some of the things that we're probably more connected to would kind of have that instinct to go, yeah, that God's, God's world is good, but it's really, really broken, but we should do a lot to change it. That's kind of the, you know, one of the instincts of kind of the evangelical history is to be activist. Um, you know, we're going to do what we can to, to change things. And so I just think where you end up uh, in terms of how you think about culture really has a lot to do with, can you live in that tension or do you have to try to solve it one way or the other? And I think for the purposes of Redemption Gateway in particular, or just whoever ends up listening to this, is trying to be self-aware about our instincts, our gut level resistance or acceptance to either positivity or negativity when we start talking about the world and culture. Because I think for a lot of folks who grew up in a tradition like I did, you hear the word world and you immediately think the bad people, the bad stuff, the immoral stuff. Right. Right. Whereas others who maybe grew up in a more progressive environment might look at, you know, the, uh, the predicted life expectancies. They looked at the average household incomes. They might look at uh, disease rates. They might look at, you know, casualties during war post world war two and go like, look at how much better the world is getting, you know, yes, there are a lot of problems, but look at the progress. And so you might kind of buy into like this myth of progress and by myth, I don't mean it's false. I just mean like this narrative of things are just slowly getting better and people with um, more liberal progressive um, ideologies tend to have instincts that drive those ideologies that are just more like, Hey, let's be positive yeah. and, and acknowledge the progress and, Whereas people with more conservative or regressive myth of regression, which is the world's constantly getting worse and we believe that's going on, and 
the reality is both those things happen all the time. The, like yeah. pe- people ask me, you know, is the world getting better? Is the world getting worse? And I said, the world is always getting better and it's always getting worse. Yeah. The, the, it, it feels like it's getting darker and the light is shining brighter in the darkness. Yeah. All the time. And, and it also depends on where you're sitting and where you're located. Right. If, if you asking this question of is the world improving or not improving or is the kingdom of God reigning or not reigning? If you are in Nigeria versus in Arizona versus in Timbuktu versus in China. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's it's like, it's like right now when people are like, we've never been more divided in America. I'm like, we, we fought a civil war. That's pretty divided, right? Like maybe we haven't been as divided since then, but like, yeah, depending on your, you always want to kind of elevate your place in history to be more than it is. Yeah. We tend to project this is this idea of like egocentrism or ethnocentrism. Yeah. We tend to project our immediate circumstances onto the entire world. Right. We, we overread our immediate, both like in terms of my household and in terms of my city and my state and my nation, we overread ourselves into the world situation all the time. And part of that is because like when we we're always looking at the world through lenses and our lenses are always us in what we're going through. And so if I have a headache and a bad day, you know, then I read the news, then I'm going to read the news one way. Sure. Whereas if, you know, I just have everything, everything's banging on all cylinders, my per- personal life. And then I read the news. I'm like, Oh, these people are just negative, you know? <laughs> and then, so, <laughs> sure. so we just overread stuff all the time. I'm curious, going back to your sermon on culture, what's something else that you wanted to say, but chose not to either because you knew we were going to do a podcast or because <laughs> you thought, you know, not the right time, not the right place. Or was there something else you're kind of shaping that decision on, Hey, I can't do it all. So I'm going to do something. Yeah. I, th- I think some of it is just that, um, what, what I just talked about that kind of that te- those tensions to manage between common grace and, and, uh, a sinful world versus an active church and a passive church. Um, I, I think another one that, um, that I didn't really get into because I didn't know how to get in. I didn't really know how to get into it, but I think an interesting question, I'd be curious to your thoughts on this is when we're talking about how should the church engage culture? There's two ways even to think about that question, right? There's how should the church as an entity, as an organization, as a kind of unified, the church redemption church gateway, 501 C three dot, dot, dot engage culture. Another way to say this, how should Christians who are the church, who are the body of Christ, how should the people of Redemption Gateway in their various vocations and callings and neighborhoods and hobbies and et cetera, engage culture? And I think that's a really, that, that's, that feels to me like another tension to manage. Like there's probably some place for the church as an entity to do stuff, um, but probably a lot of cultural engagement is going to happen individually. And even, um, you know, I think, I think about people, like people's frustrations at points with the church as it relates to engaging culture is when the church as an entity, they feel like either did too much or said too much or didn't do enough or didn't say enough. I'm curious how you think about that tension. Yeah, A lot of the, the tension that I've had with other leaders within churches or other places when I'll, they'll be critical of me or to me of other people who are saying, like, what is the mission of the church? Is it really the church's role to be trying to transform or change culture? When I go back to and break this down on terms of, like, gathered or scattered, so the gathered church, what I would say, are, like, the formal, organized, institutional functions. That is the the assembly of the body under the authority of the elders 
where the sacraments are administered and the word is preached and ultimately church discipline is exercised. That's like the formal institutional reality. You could institutional is probably too uh, corporate of a word. We could call it like the the formal functions of the family, right? That yeah. that idea. But then there's like the scattered church as opposed to the gathered church, which is so we get this question in the rooted classes and new members classes all the time. You know how what do you guys do about blank? blank? Yeah. And one, it's one of my favorite questions to get because I say, like, well, once you go through this membership class, what you do for blank is what we do for blank. Yeah. Right. What we, like, the most recent class we did is someone's like, how do you treat, how does the church treat gay people? And I was like, well, how do you treat gay people? Because you're the church. Sure. Right. And sometimes what they're asking is, how is it spoken of from the pulpit? That's the gathered church. Yeah. Whereas what I really want, our church to feel both the burden of and the freedom of is going like, Hey, we are the church and whether I'm at the pulpit or I'm in line at the grocery store, the church is doing something. Yeah. And that tension between what we do as a scatter church, meaning people who start other nonprofits, think tanks, activist centers who work for domestic violence shelters, who work for refugee resettlement processing, screening things who work for, uh, you know, private adoption, foster care, kinship, support agencies, people who end up formally running for office who may be part of our congregation, people who work in economics and public policy, people who run corporations and affect, affect the lives of hundreds of people. There's, there's just a lot, like publicly traded companies in particular, which have massive ripple effects for lots of people, not just their employees. And going, everything that all the Christians do in all those places is the church doing culture-making work. Yeah, sure. Uh, and the room for conscience and wisdom and difference in strategy in all those places is tremendous. And so thinking through how the church engages with culture, every time someone from our church goes to the voting ballot or voting box to cast their ballot, the church is voting, mm-hmm. right? That's not you saying, hey, Luke, hey, congregation, I'm, I'm Luke Simmons. I'm your lead pastor. I need everyone to go out and check this box next week. Right. Otherwise, you're in trouble. <laughs> right. That's, yeah. That would be like a, what I would consider, especially like Baptists, which I'm a Baptist at heart, even though we're not theologically necessarily all the way Baptist. But Baptists make a ton of room for conscience and really resist the idea of binding the conscience. Mm. Meaning there are things that are black and white in scripture, like Christians must care for the poor, period. Now, how that plays out economically, uh, in terms of generosity, in terms of public policy, in terms of the creation of value, uh, what role, like there's a whole books written on like when helping hurts. And so how different Christians live out the idea of caring for the poor and the extent to which the church corporately or like the elders can bind the conscience of people on, like I think we can tell people you must care for the poor. That's right. close sure. to the heart of God. Yeah, we, we will in a couple weeks. <laughs> yeah, we will in a couple weeks. Yeah. But then jumping to, and here's how you must do it. Sure. Is kind of hard because I do think that there's a lot of economic theories. There's a lot of questions about what actually helps people. There's a lot of questions about um, how much should be given away versus invested and how do you create value versus just do handouts and how do you, what role for charity is there as opposed to investment and development. And so all of those things are huge conscience questions. So that's one of the reasons why when I think about Christians engaging culture, I tend to think mostly about the 
all of life has offered Jesus, the scattered church. Hey, we all need to fear the Lord, follow the spirit, and then do our best in our various spheres. Sure. So that's, that's at least for me, my biggest instinct is I want the people of Redemption Church to feel freedom and responsibility to say, I must work this out for me Yeah. in my job, in my household, in my sport leagues, at my grocery store. And I want the church to be there to kind of help shape thinking and instincts and coach when necessary. Uh, but this, this really is like uh, the, the scattered people of God going about their daily lives, doing all of life is all for Jesus, more so than it is for me, the pulpit just kind of calling shots. Yeah. So I'm curious for you, do you feel similarly? Do you feel a little bit different? Or what, what, how far do you go in the pulpit before you're going, I think I'm crossing the line? Well, um, it's interesting even in the pulpit. That's an interesting, I mean, because I feel like the pulpit is largely about the teaching and discipleship and that kind of challenging of people with the, you know, it's a kind of confronting with biblical truth. Right. So that's one of the interesting things is, is, uh, you know, when we talked about this Sunday is we tend to really try in our preaching to go, Hey, let's hold up a mirror. Let's not look out the window at the other people. And so even when we uh, preach about stuff that connects with things that are happening outside, we're usually thinking about how does this affect me? How does this affect our people? How does this affect our family? Um, but yeah, I, I, I guess I'd agree with you. I think the instinct that I have is, is probably more in terms of how the church uh, engages culture as we're scattered. And then I think about the things that we do that are, that, that we get behind more organizationally usually happens to be where people are already involved individually um, or kind of on their own. So like I think about a, an incredible uh, culture making deal. I mean, there's a woman in our church uh, Quinn Anderson, who, you know, maybe 15 or so years ago took a mission trip to Juarez, found out that about a quarter, 25% of the babies in this neighborhood that were born didn't live past six months because they weren't, they didn't have nutrition. They would get infections because they didn't have diapers. The uh, moms were malnourished, so they couldn't nurse. And she's going, oh my goodness, I used to have babies and throw away all this extra formula. What if I figured out a way to get this formula to these women. And so she started this thing called babies of Juarez and off she went. And it was just her just gathering up old formula, gathering up diapers, taking trips down there, you know, 15 years later, like the infant mortality rate in that community is zero. And she took, you want to talk about transforming culture. You want to talk about making culture like that's, and yet hardly anybody knows about that. Now we've gone, that's incredible. Let's get behind that. Right. So as a church, we a couple times a year, take up collections of formula and diapers and things like that as an organized thing where it's sponsored and it's part of the communication and there's slides and there's emails and there's all that stuff. But I, I, you know, I think that's at least our approach. We tend to go, well, let's organizationally get behind and let's just pour fuel on the fire of what God's already doing through the scattered church. And that's a great example to me of a, a couple of things. One is the unfortunate way that politics is the presumed means that people think about when you talk about transforming culture. Yeah, I'm glad you're going here because I, as we were talking earlier, I was going like, this is the other piece that I'd love to get into. Yeah, she did not run for office and we did not lobby politicians. She just got busy right, and, and did the faithful work of ministry and started loving her neighbors and was not trying to hide behind government process to make it happen. She just saw the need and saw the opportunity. And I think about this idea of like just license to just take initiative and do something. And there's a quote by a guy named Dan Doriani who oversaw my dissertation that I really appreciate. He said that Christians are not responsible to transform the world. 
but they are responsible to transform their corner of the world. Mm. Meaning that which good. The, that, yeah, I like that. that which the Lord has entrusted to you, do something about it. Right. Or, or that which you can do something about, do something about it. Sure. Don't get all hot and bothered about something that you have no influence or control over. Like part of what we need to do is look at even like the parable of the Good Samaritan. What made that Samar- that parable so powerful is the fact that all of those guys could have done something and didn't. Right. It's not that parable against Samaritans is not a judgment on someone halfway across the world who couldn't have done anything and didn't. It's those people who saw the saw the opportunity, saw the need that they could have met and they chose not to. And so really trying to have eyes for opportunity and even that like being entrepreneurs of blessing, trying to go like what are the what are the possibilities that I can be exercised the way that I've been blessed to be a blessing? And that's part of what I love about Quinn's story is it wasn't political activism it was just activism activism yeah and she wasn't even going how do i get the birth rate to zero she was just going i have extra formula i can i know people that have extra formula i could help some people i have a car yeah. I, I have money i have formula what is stopping me yeah like and so it wasn't even like how do we change the culture it was like i just see a need the Lord put it on her heart. I mean, and this is the other thing is there's a million needs. We're not all called to meet all of them. We're not all called to fix all of them. I think one of the things that can be overwhelming now is just how many needs you know about and you can feel paralyzed by. And so you got to listen to the voice of God to go, hey, no, you need to do something here. But yeah, I, I love that. And I and I think you're right. I mean, I just think we do overestimate politics. This would be another thing that I maybe would have, I don't know if I'd wanted to go into this just because anytime you touch politics, it's just so easily misunderstood. So here I go. I'm going to do it on our podcast. But I feel like one of the things that I really believe is that politics are downstream of culture. And what I mean by that is like a a great example is um, for 20 years, you have the normalizing of same-sex relationships through sitcoms and television and then politics finally kind of catches up to that and goes, okay, gay marriage is okay. Yeah, that's just basically how it works in yeah. democracies. Right. Is public opinion is public opinion, and public opinion changes. Right. And I look at it and I go like, this is why politics is largely ineffective because politics is downstream. Like it, whatever got put in up the stream from – tech companies, from media, from, you know, all these kind of major, what you would, the arts, all these things, all that eventually trickles down to downstream. And so we put a lot of hope in politicians. We have a lot of anger related to politicians. And yet not that much happens. Like they don't do much and they do some, right? You could argue that, well, this decision had this impact and that decision had that impact. Um, But it's interesting how I feel like uh, we we put a disproportionate amount of energy into the politics part when the politics is really more just reflecting what the culture has already done. Um, and I, and I, I, I don't know my, I'd be curious why you think I, my hypothesis on it is politics is just one of those few places where it feels more clear. Like, are you for this? Or are you against this? Do you like this? Do you not like that? Do you advocate this policy or that policy? And so that's like this, it's more tangible feeling. And yet the reality is you could have like a, you know, totally Christian president and vice president and speaker of the house and on and on and on and on. And their ability to really change things is going to be kind of hamstrung compared to if you have a lot of people shaping culture in other ways. So yeah, it's one of the things you see all the time is when you have United house Senate and white house, 
how disappointed people tend to be on what the heck we had. Yeah. We had, we had the, all three branches and had, nothing happened. Yeah. And that's just historically been true, at least historically since I've been paying attention, which is yeah. our, not that long. Going back to like the way we think about our church and even the, the upstream downstream effects and, and the way that we're all putting something into the river. Right? We're all like the, the mm-hmm. culture, the, it, you know, the culture is not monolithic. There's lots of pockets of cultures everywhere. Yep. But there is kind of like this big stream we're all playing in. And we're all putting something into the water. And some of us have bigger buckets. Some of us have smaller buckets. But we're all putting something into the water. I think about this framework, and I want you to uh, unpack it as I as I say it. I had a mentor one time who I was complaining about something, and he was trying to get me to not complain about stuff anymore. Because <laughs> he, he talked about, so three concentric circles. So, like, there's bullseye, there's small, bigger circle, and the biggest circle. And he said, the small circle is a circle of control. Hmm. This is stuff that God has called you to. You have dominion over it. Your alarm clock, what you eat, your exercise, your work ethic, you. This is, you have control over it, and other people can influence it, but it's yours. Yep. Then the next bigger circle is a circle of influence, right? This is, okay. you can't control it, but you can affect it. This is your coworkers. This is your employees. This is your kids. Mm-hmm. This is your spouse. This is your church. Your church. You can influence it, but you can't control it. Mm-hmm. And the next biggest circle is a circle of concern, the circle of anxiety. Mm. This is all the junk you care about that you can do nothing <laughs> about. Right. And so since he gave that, he's like, so you grow your circle of control by developing self-discipline. You grow your circle of influence by developing relationships and you grow your circle of concern by watching the news. Right. That was, that was the whole idea. And say that again. You grow your circle of control by growing in self-discipline or discipline. Okay. Uh, you grow your circle of influence by growing in relationships. Mm-hmm. And you grow your circle of concern by watching the news. Yeah. And he talked about how one of the ways you can actually pursue mental health is by shrinking your circle of concern and expanding your circle of control. Because hmm. you tend to feel less yeah. out of control. This, was, this is wisdom you got from this friend. Yeah, I was I was laying on the ground after a workout he made me do, and I was complaining about I'm going to be sore tomorrow for this game. And he looked at me and said, who decided to come here today? I don't want to hear about this. And he told me, you're in control of your life. You didn't have to show up. Yeah. Don't whine to me about how you chose to show up. Sure. And so that was that that whole idea. But thinking about one of the points you made in the, in, in the sermon that I really appreciate is this idea of uh, one of the best things we give is our transformed, transforming presence. Yeah. And so interact with me on this idea of being a transformed presence who moves into places and is a transforming presence. And how do you, how do you take control over being a transformed presence? Yeah, that, man, that's an interesting and good question. Uh, you know, I'm still thinking about those circles and kind of going, um, you know, I think th- this is one of the, some of it is I think you have to just have sober-minded, clear thinking, right? That's what sober-minded is. It's you see things the way they really are. And I think one of the realities is um, the areas that we have concern over, we actually think we have influence, but we don't. Uh, the, the places where we think we, where there's, we have influence, we actually think we have control, but we don't. Um, and we don't often think about what we actually do have control about. We're so worried about everyone and everything else. Like I just find a lot of the people who are just overwhelmed with concern for what's going on out there tend to be kind of a mess uh, themselves. And so 
some of it is just sober-mindedly going, you know what, my uh, my influence is smaller than I think. I don't make as big of a difference as I think. And um, I do want to control what I can control. So, um, Well, even on those lines, some of like the healthiest people I know, what makes them healthy is their contentment. They mm-hmm. go, I'm going to pull the weeds in my garden. <laughs> yeah. And if that spills over beyond something else, yep. then that's great. And the Lord has blessed it. But there's like a contentedness. Like they're not trying to build and grow their circle of influence through like artificial relationships and networking. Mm-hmm. They're kind of content to just do, to transform their little corner of the world and yep. make it a faithful little pocket of the kingdom and to yeah. do their thing in obscurity. And there's kind of this attitude of, and if it grows beyond that, Mm-hmm. So be it. But if it doesn't, yeah. I, I'm content before the Lord with what I've contributed. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, the three things you're always doing as a leader, right? You and I are both leaders. Not everyone listening to this is leaders, but everyone in, a, in some sense, even if you're just leading yourself, you are. The three things you're always doing, you're defining reality, you're dreaming a preferred future, and you're designing the path to get there. So, um, but, but the hardest thing to do of those three is defining reality. Because you want to tell yourself it's better than it is or it's worse than it is. Um, it's just very hard to see clearly. Um, sometimes, I mean, we tend to see, we think a lot clearer other people. It's hard to see ourselves clearly. It's hard to see our situation clearly. And so uh, one, of the, you know, one of the things I think if we're going to be a transforming, transforming presence is we have to be able to define reality and we have to be able to know ourselves and you only really do that in relationships with people who know you, who you then say, Hey, help me know myself. You know, when I come in the room, what comes into the room with me? What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What are the things that, uh, you know, what are the tendencies I have that I don't think are that big of a deal, but they're a bigger deal than I think. Right. And inviting those kinds of conversations and that sort of self-awareness helps you to go, okay, here's where I am. Okay. Then if that's where I am, that's where I am. And now how can I dream a, a different future for how can I be less reactive about that? How can I think more before I talk? How can I, whatever, whatever it is that you're dealing with. And so I feel like it's that defining of reality in community with people who have permission and the courage to, to speak honestly into your life. And then um, what you find is actually, um, I mean, sometimes that, and that reality can be pretty painful but you can't change it if you don't know what it is. And so, um, yeah, I mean, man, as I think about your circles there of, of uh, control, influence, and uh, concern, I think we would all be far more influential and far more difference makers if we really focused on that bullseye of the circle to go, where am I? Where is God trying to grow me? Who is he calling me to be? Who is he inviting me to be? And letting that spill over into those other things, uh, really kind of this sort of inside out life versus an outside in life. It makes me think of this story that one of the pastors at Redemption Tucson named Marcus shared at a leadership team meeting. Uh-huh. He's talking about growing up in a place that was, there's a lot of police military violence. What was it? Name of the nation he was in. Yeah. He grew up in Liberia. Liberia. In West yeah. Africa. Yeah. yeah. His, uh, his dad was actually like the head of the secret service. And uh, the government got overthrown at one point, and um, he lived in this, yeah, this kind of police battle, civil war kind of reality for a while. Yeah, and he ended up being orphaned, is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. And he's living with these adoptive 
foster parents and the the military police came out and were about to execute people next door to him. Right. And at the time he was like eight or nine years old, something like that. And he wanted to do something. And he shared the story like in a pretty gripping way, yelling at his foster dad, you're a coward. We need to do something. What are we going to do? And then the people next door ended up getting executed by the police. And you know, they're, and he watched that happen. He saw it happen. Yeah. 20 yards away through the window. And there's this moment he had with his foster dad where his foster dad, you know, and his foster brothers looked at him and said, I'm doing what I can. Hmm. And so if the foster dad had ran out there to quote, try to do something, he would just also gotten himself killed. Right. Whereas for this family, this household, this um, man and woman, the best thing they could do was to love these foster kids. Well, yep. Right. That there are people content to say, I'm going to do what I can. And what I've control over is me and what I bring to this house, what I've influence over is this house. Mm-hmm. And that's what I hope. And so he was talking about that in the context of um, silence is violence or not. And he's, right. he's mostly making the point of, Hey, I've seen violence <laughs> and it didn't look like silence. Right. You know, his, yeah. But you have to, before the Lord, have a clear conscience and say, I'm going to do what I can and I'm not going to do everything. Well, and, th- and this takes me back to, I mean, since we've already quoted Andy Stanley, um, you know, another Andy Stanley quote I think about like almost every day is he says, uh, the greatest thing you do in your life might not be something you do. It might be someone you raise. And I get emotional just saying that quote because I, I just feel like, man, you want to make culture, like raise some godly, amazing people like gosh that like that and and i and i mean you just spent a year working on a dissertation and thinking about what parents and and it's like uh healthy people came from parents who it wasn't like they had all the information it's that they had a healthy presence yes they were uh they had poise they had calm they had strength they had courage um and I just think it's like one of those things of like, yeah, we know it, but I want a shortcut. <laughs> yeah. It it all comes back to this, the, the biblical word subdue in Genesis 1. The word subdue is always used in Hebrew with its creative force. And it's not self-serving force, but it's force that causes flourishing, mm. right? It's it's kneading bread. They're talking about subduing the dough. Yep. It's stepping on grapes to produce wine. It's plowing the field. The unplowed field being field is the field being subdued. And I hope that we can all, as Christians, go, what has God given me to subdue? Meaning, how can I apply creative force that causes to flourish? And force is probably too negative a word. You know, it sounds, that can sound yeah, kind of abusive. But you could say creative effort. Yeah, it's work. Yeah. And so whether you're the CEO of a medium-sized company, a large company, a two-person employee a company, or you're co-leading a house with your spouse, or you're leading a small group at the church, it's subdue your field. Yeah. And some of us have larger fields than others. Some of us, our fields will get bigger over time. But it's the whole idea of culture making is subdue your field. Apply creative work that causes something to flourish, 
in small ways and in slightly less small ways. Yeah. But being content to do that is a lot of what I hope that we that we sign up for is to do the ordinary steady plotting of plow your field, plow your field, pull the weeds. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's, I think, a good vision for for how we counterculture. I mean, that, that's a lot of what we were trying to say on, on Sunday is going like, hey, let's look in the mirror. Let's, you know, it's, it's the song we sang before the message, you know, give me a clean heart. You know, let, let me be the place you start. Give me a clean heart. And, um, yeah, I just, uh, you know, and some people are called to be involved in politics and some people are all called to do public policy. And, um, you know, we, we actually have had people that are part of our church that have been part of white house transition teams. And it's like, that's a, that's a big deal. Um, but in those cases, that's their field to plow, <laughs> you know? And, uh, for me, to spend a bunch of time worrying about that stuff when I'm just mostly trying to go, how do I take care of, of, uh, what God's called me to do? Um, yeah, that just seems like a good call. So I appreciate that. Let's talk a little bit about where we're going these next, uh, these next five weeks. So, um, uh, next week we're going to be talking about uh, gender, specifically gender identity. Uh, then we'll talk about sexuality. We'll talk about God's heart for the vulnerable. We'll talk about generosity. We'll talk about salvation. And, uh, yeah, Seth, you're up this week. Um, you've got 12 hours worth of material. And so, uh, we'll, you know, hear your sermon on Sunday and then we'll come back and we'll talk more. Um, anything that uh, you're thinking about as you go into that? No, not, I mean, yes, I'm thinking about everything as I go into that. I'm thinking about everything as I go into that, but more so I just want the people of Redemption Gateway and people who are going to end up listening in to just have, going back to this common grace thing, that one of the best gifts we get is existence in our bodies. Plato and a bunch of people after him considered the body as a tomb the body is a curse, but our bodies are blessings. Yeah. And they're, they're aging, decaying, developmentally problematic bodies, but they're still fundamentally blessings. Mm. And so they're not what they could be because of sin, and they're not necessarily what they ought to be because of sin. And that creates mental and physical abnormalities, aberrations. Yeah. But our bodies are good. Yeah. And, and we eat food, we sleep, we hold each other, we sing— our bodies are good. And and that's kind of, to me, the baseline thing about this gender and sexuality deal is are our bodies problems we have to get over or solve through surgical intervention or something yeah. else? Or are they fundamentally gifts that we get to have and enjoy and be a part of? And that fundamental blessing of existence in the body is a big deal. Well, I think that the regular listeners to this podcast will be ahead of the game. That is true. Because they've heard us over the last number of episodes talk about some of those issues. And uh, so if you're new to this, uh, yeah, go back and listen to the last few episodes. We worked through Seth's dissertation and some of the stuff there. And, uh, yeah, I guess that's it for today then. We'll be back next week with the uh, second weekly episode, at least as long as we can keep them going. The second episode in season (laughs) 2.5. See you next week. Bye.